0: In all of the turmoil around the election, I paused and asked God if there was a different message I was supposed to bring today. Maybe something more direct to what's going on in our world. But as I prayed, God kept bringing James 1 to my mind in the midst of trials. Because James was writing to Christians that were being persecuted for their faith. What we see in James 1 is that in James one, James is writing to these believers, they're in a trial, they're in persecution, and essentially what the book of James was about is he just calls them to holy living. So he did not go, hey, you're, you're in this trial, so that lets you off the hook. No, he's writing to believers in turmoil and saying, here's how you continue to live for Christ. And so as I was thinking through that, I thought, well, I really believe that God's leading me just to continue to preach through the same uh, series we've been in, in Colossians. So for those of you that all just turn to James 1, you can turn to Colossians 3 now. uh, And that's where we're going to be, because what I notice when I turn to Colossians 3 is that it's just very much about holy living and setting our hope upon Jesus Christ. Also, in regards to holy living, Paul in the book of Colossians is dealing with the root of our sin, and as I reflected on this passage this week, I realized how transformative a real understanding of the root of sin can be, because to really deal with it, we must understand the root issue, and, and that's a lot of what's going on in our passage today. So I've titled today's sermon, The Root, we're going to be in Colossians 3, 4-6, through 6, continuing our sermon series, Jesus First, and we're going to answer three questions. We're going to answer three questions today. I'm going to give you those questions and then we're going to work through them and give the answers as we go. Number one question is What is the root of sin? What is the root of sin? You know that if you're pulling weeds in your yard, you really want to get those weeds out. You can't just take what's on the top. You have to get the roots, you have to get the whole thing out. Many times in our lives, we just deal with the surface level stuff. We never get to the root. So, what is the root of sin? Number two Why does sin matter? Second question, why does it even matter? Why should we deal with it? Why should we care about it? Number three, how can I defeat personal sin? So we're really going to end with some very uh, pertinent application towards the end of the sermon. But we have to lay this foundation of what is the root, why does it matter, and then we'll talk about how to deal with it before we close. So the first question, what is the root of sin? We're going to be in Colossians 3, verse 4. Colossians 3, verse Four. That's where we left off last week, but we really have to look at this verse before we can move into verses five and six. Verse four says, When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in what? Glory. Now what we find in Colossians 3 4 are how I would describe three promises and yet warnings at the same time. In this verse, we're promised, first of all, that Christ is going to return. That is a promise. So the warning is, don't forget that. Live your life in light of that. Look forward to the return of Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears. That's the second promise, is that Christ is our life. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no true life outside of Jesus. You may think you're living, but apart from Christ, you're on a path that ends in death. So we see that Jesus is our life. So the caution is, don't seek life outside of Christ. And then the third promise, as well as a caution in this verse, is that, man, when he appears, we're going to appear. Those of us who have believed in him, who are children of God, we get to appear with him in glory. That is a huge promise. Now the caution is, don't look to the glory of this world. It just will not satisfy. We were meant for a glory that is to come. So understanding verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Then we go to verse five, and he says, "Therefore put to death your members which are on earth, fornication, uncleanliness passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Now notice at the beginning of verse 5, he says, therefore. And what Paul is doing is he is very clearly linking verse 4 and verse 5. And this happens all throughout the New Testament, is that when we see passages about the return of Christ, hey, Jesus is going to return. And usually what goes along with that is, here's how you're to live. The return of Christ meant something to the early church. It meant, here's how we're to live, awaiting our master's return. Because he could return at any moment, we want to be found working in our master's field, doing that which is pleasing unto him. Many of Jesus' parables connected this. It didn't start in the epistles. It started with Jesus. How many parables did he tell about a master that was going away and then returning? And what shape would his servants be found in? See, in light of the return of Christ, it, it bears upon how we should be living now. So it says, therefore, in light of verse four, the truth of verse four is the command of verse five. Put to death your members and that are on the earth. And then what he does in the rest of the verse is he just clarifies what he means by that. So let's walk through this. <laughs> I'm gonna walk through this carefully in a mixed crowd of, of, of mixed men and, and women of all ages. So Hopefully your kids won't ask you what that means too many times when you get home here. Uh, But fornication, the word that we translate that, that's pornea in the Greek. And it is, you know, as every word, context determines meeting. But it's a general word that's used at times for adultery, prostitution, what happened in the temple, worship of the false gods, the false idols. It's really more of a general word that is describing any sort of sexual Activity that is out of God's covenant relationship of marriage between one man and one woman. So it's more of a general term to kind of cover a lot of bases. And then the next word is uncleanliness. And, and this word in the Greek is "a, kath,a The "a" at the beginning is negating the rest of the word. And the, the word is catharsis. It means cleansing. So when you put the "a" in front of it saying unclean. And when you look at the list in the New Testament that deal with these sins, these words often go together. Again, speaking of sexual morality, The next word is passion. Isn't passion a good thing? Well, yes, when it's focused in the right direction. But here again in context, these are three words that are actually used together in other lists in the New Testament, pointing to a passion, a desire that is not directed towards God. And I think that's clarified in the next word, evil desire. Again, context is key. This is a desire that is in rebellion against God. Many times when we preach, we're focusing on the actions, the things that we need to correct in our life. And, it's, and I think sometimes we, we have an understanding of sin, like God is behind a bush watching us, and when we sin, God's going to jump out and go, caught gotcha! you, you know? And as long as we don't get caught, then it's really not that bad. Jesus, in Matthew 5, on the Sermon of the Mount, one of the greatest, if not the greatest sermon ever preached, he completely debunks that, and he makes it clear that sin begins in the heart, and sin is in the heart. He says, you've heard it say, don't murder your brother, but I say, if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. You've heard it say, don't commit adultery, but I say, if you look at a woman lustfully, then you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your what? Heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. So the scary thing about sin is, it's not just in deed, it is also in thought, and it is in the desires of our heart. And God sees it all. There's never a moment where it's hidden from him. In fact, much of the Bible, when it talks about judgment, talks about God is the revealer of all these things that we think we're keeping Hidden oh, man, that's kind of heavy just for the beginning of the sermon. Well, we need to understand how deep the well is before we can really appreciate what Jesus has done to pull us out. What is the root of our sin? Well, as you continue on here, after evil desires, he says covetousness. Again, that is something that is often a sin of the heart where you're seeing what someone else has, and you're saying, they have it, I want it, and it should be mine. And then he clarifies when he says idolatry. And the way that this is in Greek where it says covetousness, which is idolatry, that word idolatry is actually helping us understand what covetousness is. And so just take this idolatry, this concept of idolatry, and hold that in your mind for just a minute. Because I think that what Paul is doing here in Colossians 3, he's really showing us that idolatry is at the root of much sin. But, but let's, let's go ahead and make it clear by turning to Romans 1. Romans 1 and Colossians 3 have many of the exact words overlap, and the the commentators were quick to point this out over and over again, and this is going to help us understand what is the root of sin. Look at Romans 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God, and we're going to see the word wrath is in our next verse in Colossians, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, an unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's the first problem, is that the truth has been revealed, but we suppress it. We reject it. Because of what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has made it known. God has manifested himself. God has revealed himself. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and his Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, this is talking about general revelation. But what it's saying is that God has made himself known. His thumbprint is on his creation. And what men have done is they've looked at the thumbprint of God and they've rejected him. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him. Key in on that. They did not glorify Him. They saw God, and they chose not to glorify Him as God. Nor were they thankful. And that's interesting that's thrown in there. They're not thankful, and became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. That's idol worship. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image of man like a corruptible man, the birds and the four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanliness. God gave them over to their sin and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's the key. God revealed himself. God made himself known. They rejected the truth. They chose a lie. They chose to worship something else. Look, they worshiped and served the creature, that's idol worship, rather than the creator, who's blessed forever, amen. Now, here's the result of the idol worship. Here's the result of the sin. For this reason, God gave them up to their vile passions. For even the women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also men having... The natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which is due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do things which are not fitting. Now look at the list of sin here. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, even mind, evil-mindedness. they are whispers. All of this comes out of the root that they've rejected God. Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud. Do you see here, too, how God's not making any distinction in these sins? I mean, if you, you are here and you're proud of heart. I mean, we all struggle, I would say, with something on this list at some point. And so I can understand that if I'm struggling with pride, I'm in the same list as someone who's murdered. Sin is sin. It is rebellion against God. Covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are whispers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. That's in there with murderers. Why? Because God has given you the parents that you have. And so when we rebel against the authority that God's given us, we're actually rebelling against God. Now, when you get into issues of, of abuse, that's a whole other situation that we don't have time to discuss right now. Undisconcerting and untrustworthy, unloving. Look at these that are listed. Unloving, unmerciful, unforgiving, unmerciful. And knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice these things are deserving of what? Death. God sees it when we're unmerciful, and that's sin before Him. The Bible says that that makes us deserving of death. Wow. It kind of puts sin in perspective a little bit, doesn't it? Not only do the same things, but approve of those who practice them. So, what is the root of sin? Well, I think it's really clear specifically in verses 18 through 21. Look at verses 18 through 21 again, and and, and let's answer the question what's the root of sin? God's wrath is revealed against men against he- uh, from heaven, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The root of sin, first of all, is, is beginning with a rejection of what God's revealed. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they're without excuse. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their fearless hearts were darkened. Last verse, we're going to repeat verse 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forevermore. Amen. Paul is saying is that God has revealed himself so that we are without excuse, and at the heart of sin is that we see God and we say, no, not my God. You don't do it my way. You're not doing it how I think you should do it. I choose to serve a God that I can control. That is the essence of sin. And so the way I would put it is this, the root of sin is self-worship. It's looking at God, how he has revealed himself, saying, no, I want to do it this way. Self-worship. That's at the root of all sin. Every sin. There is a lot of sin in that list on Romans 1, right? You can pick any of them. Disobedience to parents. Some of you are like, yeah, keep staying on that one for a while. You know, whatever it is, pride, lust, unmerciful, whatever it is, it is a rejection of God as he has revealed himself. And it is a desire for us to be on the throne of our own lives. So what do we do with it? Well, what was interesting as I was thinking through this, uh, this morning I felt led to grab a devotional book. I haven't looked at in days. And the one that I opened to, turned to the, uh, dealt with this very issue. It said here, worship is not something that starts with us. We cannot make ourselves worship. Well, that's interesting he says this worship is the response that an individual gives when God reveals himself to that individual worship is a response that the individual gives when God reveals himself to that individual so in our lives we have the choice God has revealed himself and I either take him as he is and worship him Or I don't, and I worship myself and the God that I would make for myself that I can control. And if we understand that principle, I have become more and more convinced as I study this week, that is so foundational to the life of a believer, and it is so foundational to holy living that we must grasp that concept. That in the moment-by-moment decisions we are making, we are either worshiping God, or we are putting self on the throne. Adam and Eve are probably the best illustration of this versus the temptation of Jesus. You remember what happened in the garden? God had provided for them. Then Satan comes and tempts them, tempts them to doubt God, to not take God as he has revealed himself, but to say, look, you know, God just knows if you eat of that fruit, you'll be like him. God's trying to keep you from something. And so that temptation was there to worship self rather than to worship God as he had revealed himself. And Eve took the bait. And it says that Adam was there with her. They're guilty together. And they rejected God as he had revealed himself. And they fashioned a God in their own making and they worshiped self. They said, we want to be like God. We want to know what he's keeping from us. Then fast forward thousands of years later, Jesus steps out of heaven and earth the womb of the Virgin Mary. He's walking among us. He's living among us for some 30 years. He's about to begin his public ministry. The Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted. He's there for 40 days, 40 nights. Then Satan shows up to tempt him much like in the Garden of Eden and begins with a temptation around food says, hey, Jesus, in in other words, I know you're hungry, uh, but you're the Son of God. Why don't you command those stones to become bread? There's no need for you. You're out in the wilderness. You've been fasting. You're hungry. There's no need for you to do this anymore. Just worship the God of your own making. Do what you want to do. Don't remain submitted to the Father. Do what you want to do, Jesus. What did Jesus do? He responded with Scripture. "Man, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then then Satan kept coming at him with temptations. Hey, throw yourself down. And it's written in the Psalms that he'll give his angels charge concerning you. Did you know that Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus to try to tempt him? See, Satan does not play fair. I've heard a lot of other people use Scripture that way as well. You can make it say whatever you want to. Satan tempted Jesus that second time. Jesus had the option to either worship self. Or to say, submitted to the Father. He said, submitted to the Father. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then Satan took him up to a very high place where he could see all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, I will give you all this if you'll bow down and worship me. Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God alone. Only him shall you serve. You see, it's very instructive. Even Jesus affirmed, don't miss this, that all three of those temptations... We're about who would be worshipped. Would Jesus stay surrendered to the Father's will? Or would he put self on the throne? Do you see that? Isn't that deceptive, the nature of sin? It just creeps in and it wants you to take the place that is rightfully God's. Now why does that matter? That's the second question. Why does it matter? Well, look at verse 6. Because of these things, these sins, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Well, that should get your attention. It matters because God's wrath is just hanging there waiting to be poured out on sin. To answer the question, I'm going to give you this one up up front here, and then we'll talk about more. Why does sin matter? Well, because the end of sin, the end of self-worship, is the wrath of God. The wrath of God. Now look at Revelation chapter 20 for just a minute. Revelation chapter 20. I I think this is interesting how God's judgment is very just. Because the way that we have sin pictured is that God has revealed himself. I am rejecting that revelation. I'm turning away from that revelation. I'm putting myself on the throne. So in other words, you're saying, God, get away from me. I don't want you. So look what God's going to do, the great white throne judgment. Look at what God's judgment, His wrath is going to be. To those that have rejected Him their whole lives, look what God will do. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and Him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. Then I saw the dead small and great standing before God and books were opened and another book was open, which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the Things which were written in the books, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. This is God's wrath. This is God's judgment. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So what we find about God's wrath, which is to come, which that's what's happening in Revelation 20, is it's very just. God will look at those who for their entire life have said, I don't want you to be God. I want to be my own God. And what God will say to them is, fine, you get what you want. For all eternity, depart from me. And then what they realize is it was God's grace that was holding them up even in their rebellion It was God's goodness that was giving them the blessings they had even when they were rejecting him. You see, when you remove God, you also remove all of his blessings. And then they realize the God that I've been cursing my whole life is the one that's been holding me up. And God gives them what they want, an eternity separated from him. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness of sins, to become a child of God, you may think you're living right now, but the path that you're on apart from Christ is what we just read. It's God saying, look, you've spent a life rejecting me, and now depart from me, for I never knew you. Many of you here are already believers, so you go, well, what does that have to do with me? I'm already a Christian, that's not for me. What it has to do with us is this. It is extremely short-sighted and self-deceiving to think that we can sin and we're getting away without consequences. It is foolishness. In fact, if you take the book of Proverbs, what you'll find is that much of Proverbs was written by King Solomon. You remember Solomon's story? He was given wisdom by God to where, outside of Jesus Christ himself, Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And what is much of the book of Proverbs about? It's about wise living, but it's about wise living and the consequences of sin. My son, don't go into the adulterer because this is what will happen. My son, don't be lazy because this is what will happen. My son, don't be greedy because this is what will happen. Much of the book of Proverbs is just laying out for us, if you sin, this is what you can expect. And the wisest man who ever lived is appealing to wisdom saying, run from it. Turn away from it. Don't have anything to do with it. It may be that shiny apple that's tempting you that looks good in the moment, but understand the consequences that come with sin. And if you're here and you're hiding sin in your heart, if you're hiding sin in your mind, if you're hiding sin in your actions and you think you're getting away with it, you are severely self-deceived. God sees it. God knows it. And the consequences of it, like a dam holding back water, are just waiting to bear down upon you. Now, that's pretty, uh, that's pretty dark thinking, isn't it? Uh, when's it going to get good? Well, you see, we have to understand, again, how deep the well of sin is before we can understand how to get out and the extent of what God has done to get us out. You know, sin is one of those things that is tricky because Satan wants to deceive. He doesn't play fair. And sin will always take you further than you want to go and keep you longer than you want to stay. You can't control sin. And this is where I think much of the church is today. This is the danger. And then we're going to get into how to deal with it. Much of the church today has bought into the lie that you can control sin that you can compartmentalize your life. Well, I'm going to church, or I'm doing good in these areas, I'm taking care of my family, it's okay for me to have this in my life over here. If that's your thinking, you've just identified where Jesus is not Lord of your life, and you've just identified why the problems in your life exist, you just look in the mirror, it's there. It's there. I remember seeing a news story this last week, it It's just so, it was one of those things, that wasn't funny, but it was so weird it made me laugh. It said, car thief returns baby. I was like, what? And this guy had stolen a car, and as he went to drive off, realized there was a baby in in a thing. I have four kids, I should know what they're called. A carrier in the back of the car, and he goes, well, I'm not trying to kidnap anybody. So he turns back around to where he stole the car from, took the kid out, and then still drove off with the car. How insane is that thinking? But that's the thinking that we can control sin. Well, I'm going to do this sin, but I'm sure I don't want to do that one. No, 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 no. At some point, sin becomes your master. Read your Bible. You'll see it over and over again. So how can I defeat it? Well, let's go back to Colossians 5, and then we'll be done. This is where the hope comes. This is how we can begin to walk in victory. And I realize, man, this this message has a serious tenor to it. But that's the the message of this text. It is saying forsake sin because God's wrath is bearing upon you. That's a pretty serious message, isn't it? And so we've got to do it. We've got to know how can we do that. So look back at verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. So, excuse me, going back to verse 5. And we're looking at the third question of how can I defeat personal sin. So how do I do it? How do I defeat personal sin? Verse 5 again says, Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth. And then he lists them. What's interesting to me is it's a command. I am commanded to put to death, in essence, sin. Is that reasonable? Can I do that? Well, again, we must understand he's saying look in light of who Christ is in light of what Christ has done therefore put to death your members but if you've been with us on Colossians you realize we've been talking about how we've already died to sin we've died in Christ so what's the deal with that I thought I've already died to these things well the principle that's here is that sin has been defeated in Christ but there is a death that we are to die daily uh I had an illustration I'd come up with before the election stuff. So I I want to tell you this, and 100% without doubt, I do not mean anything political by it, okay? So just take that out of your mind. In the old days, there would be times where a dictator or a monarch would arise that would abuse his power, and his subjects would get so tired of his rule that they would overthrow him. Usually they would kill him, sometimes they would just exile him and run him out. And that other people would come up and and take his place and rule. But what happened was there were several times throughout history where these deposed monarchs, when they would leave, what they would do is they would go to other nations. They would go to other countries that they had allegiances with. And they would try to regain troops and come and take back over their kingdom. Now that is a picture of what happens with sin. Jesus has come. We are bound under the dominion, under the dictatorship of sin. And Jesus comes, and he deposes that dictator, and he sets us free. So now the power of that dictator is broken. He no longer rules us. He is no longer our master. The power of sin, death, hell, and the grave is broken through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But Satan has not yet been thrown into the lake of fire. And so what happens, though, even though I am a child of God, even though I have victory in Jesus, Satan every day is rallying his forces, and he's coming back, and he's pushing on the door of my life to see if there is somewhere that he can regain control. He's defeated, though. He's defeated. But whether or not we let him back in is actually up to us. That is why Paul says, put to death. That's why he can command us, put to death. The sin, these things that lead us this way. So that brings us to our third and final answer to our question. Jesus has broken the chains of self-worship. How do I defeat sin? Well, Jesus has broken the chains of self-worship or sin, but will stay free to the degree that we stay in To the degree that I am walking in Christ is the degree of which I will be freed from sin. You know, the apostle Peter is a great example of this. In Matthew 16, uh, Peter has one of his bipolar up and down moments that Peter often had. uh, Where he's here and then he's here in the next moment. And in Matthew chapter 16... Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? And they're telling him, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some whatever. Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, Simon, blessed are you, because man hasn't revealed that to you. My father's revealed that to you. It's this great mountaintop experience. Peter's gotten it right. He's confessing Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. Then you know what happens? The very next scene, Jesus says, and by the way, as the Christ is the Savior, I'm going to go die. I'm going to die for your sins. And you know what Peter does right after this mountaintop experience? He, he pulls Jesus aside and says, Jesus, you're not going to do that. He tries to straighten Jesus out. Jesus is talking about how he's going to die and raise again. And Peter goes, uh-uh, that's not going to be you. And Jesus looks at Peter, who had just confessed him, and says, get behind me, Satan. That's how quick it can happen. You are Christ, the living God, and get behind me, Satan. Isn't that crazy? That's a little scary, isn't it? It can happen that fast. It's in that context, right after that's happened, that Jesus gives us the words of Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus says to his disciples, right after telling uh, Peter to get behind him. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. See what happened there? Peter wanted to be on the throne. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way, Peter. If you're going to follow me, you take up your cross. Do you know what a cross was? It's not something cute that we hang around, you know, our necks and go, well, you know, I got a flat tire today. That's my cross to bear. No, not at all. A cross was an instrument of death. It was the sign of a condemned criminal. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he is saying, get busy dying to yourself. That's the only way you can follow me. You see, to the degree we are freed from personal sin is going to be directly related to the degree that we are walking in Jesus. And what Jesus is telling us is you better die to self-worship if you think you're going to have any chance of walking with me. So specifically, how do we do it? That's what we're going to close with. I know you've been waiting for that. I think the key was back into Romans 1. God showed me this in a way I had never seen before. I thought it was so interesting. He talked about how God had revealed himself, but they didn't glorify him as God, and they didn't give thanks, but they worshiped and served the created things. I thought, man, that's the, the giving thanks part. That was interesting to me. And then I realized, in essence, that's what Jesus did in his temptation as he quoted back God's word to Satan, and he was, in a sense, giving thanks that God was delivering him through his word, through that temptation. So here's how it works out. There are many people today that have just given in to sin. Some of you today, maybe you've even lost hope. You think, this is just going to be a part of the rest of my life. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If Jesus died on the cross for your sins in your place and rose again from the grave... Sin does not have the last say. Jesus does. So if you're here today and you're just saying, well, this is just who I'm resigned to be, you have believed hell. Jesus is calling you to something else. And what Jesus has done is through dying on the cross and rising again from the grave is he has not only freed us from sin, but he's shown us the victory. So here's how it works. Let me just take one scripture. We're told in 1 Thessalonians in everything give thanks. So I'm to be giving thanks in all things. Not for everything. It's not, oh I've got a flat tire. This is great. No it's God I thank you that you're at work even in this. Like James 1. God you're using the difficulty for my good. I can give thanks because of who you are. So I understand because I've read God's word. Don't miss this. Because I have read God's word I know that I'm to give thanks. Now I go about my day, and what happens? I'm going about my day and I'm tempted to fear. And I know because I've read God's word that I'm not supposed to fear. And so what I do is I have a temptation now. I'm tempted to fear, fear failure, fear people, fear whatever it is. I'm tempted to either keep worshiping God or worship self, get into fear and do all that. Here's how here's how I win the victory. I know God's word, and when that fear comes, I say, God, I thank you that you've not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. God, I thank you that you have set me free. I thank you that you have accepted me in the beloved. I thank you that you will never leave me nor forsake me. What am I saying? I'm just saying scripture back to the temptation, just like Jesus did. And what happens is I go from worrying about what people are going to think about me in fear, to giving thanks to God for who He has done. And in that moment, what have I just done? In that moment, I have refused to reduce God to a God that can't deliver me of my fear. And in my thanksgiving, I have kept Him in His rightful place, which is on the throne. Do you see how that works? What about you're going about your day... And, and you're struggling with lust. You see something and you begin to struggle with lust in your heart and in your mind. God, I thank you that there is no temptation which has overtaken me, except which I can bear. You've given me a way out to, to stand up under that. So this temptation is not the end, but you have the last say. God, you've told me in your word to flee sin, to flee temptation, so I'm going to remove myself from this situation. And God, I choose to keep you on the throne and give you thanks for how you've delivered me in this moment. What about you're going about your day and something happens. And you feel that little tinge of unforgiveness. Somebody's done something and it just kind of. That deposed monarch is pushing on the door. Satan would love a foothold in your heart. And you can either worship self and say you know what. I've got a right to be angry. Congratulations, you just put yourself on the throne. Or you can remember Matthew 18, the unmerciful servant, who after he had been forgiven much, wouldn't forgive his fellow servant a little, And Jesus commanded us that as we have been forgiven, we are to forgive. And I can say, God, thank you for humbling me. God, thank you for reminding me that I am a sinner only saved by your grace, that you've forgiven me much. And thank you, God, by the power of your spirit, I can forgive this person. What they're doing is not right, but I can trust their judgment into your hands. What they're doing is harmful to me, but I can trust that you're going to use it for my good. And what I'm doing in that moment is I'm telling God back the scriptures that he's already given me as I am keeping my king on the throne instead of trying to take his place you see that I'm telling you church if we get a hold of this message not because I've preached it it's God's word There's not a thing I've said today that isn't directly tied to God's word verse by verse scripture by scripture And if we will get a hold of this message that God has just laid on me all week long, it will revolutionize the way you see life. When we understand the depths of sin, and we understand, this is what I'm closing with, that Jesus did not look at us in the depths of sin and say, I don't want to have anything to do with that mess. He stepped into our mess. He went into the lowest parts of the well. He experienced our pain, our grief, our shame, our darkness. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin. He identified with us in our desperation, in our lostness, in our darkness. And he defeated our enemies. And he said, now let's get up and get out of here because glory awaits. That's my king. That's who I serve. And in light of who he is, how can I not put off sin? How can I not do battle today? And so for some of you, the challenge is this. Some of you, you have given up. The battle's been fierce. You've grown weary, and you've given up. The battle is this. Quit believing the lie. Get up in Jesus' name and fight once again. Look to your king. Await the glory that is going to be revealed Trust in the power of his word. Trust in the power of his spirit. And know that God has so much more in store for his children than the things of this world. If you've never put your faith in Christ today, that's where you need to begin. Is by looking to this Jesus who delivers you. Who has died for you. Who redeems you. Who calls you to himself. God does not want to say, depart from me, I never knew you. That's why he sent his son. And his son says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So for some of you, you need to come to Jesus for the first time. By faith, to believe on him, to receive the forgiveness of sins, to receive the gift of his spirit, an everlasting life. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to close us in a time of prayer. I'm going to pray a twofold prayer. One is going to be for those of you that maybe today you realize I need to trust Christ to forgive me. And then the other is going to be for the rest of us to ask God to help us to continue to apply his word to our hearts through the week. And I I pray that you'll take the growth guide and you'll continue to press into that this week. If you missed the growth guide on your way in, you can get one on, on your way out. But if you would, would you please join me in a moment of prayer? I'm going to close my eyes and bow my head as a way of focusing in on the Lord. I invite you to do the same with me, whether you're here in the sanctuary or you're joining us by live stream. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us and you have met us at our deepest point of need. And you have provided the forgiveness of sins and you have broken the power of sin. And it is available, that is available to all who believe. Now I speak to those of you that may be here today that have never put your faith in Jesus Christ into salvation. And I encourage you to call out to him. The Bible says that whoever believes, will be saved. If you have the Son, you have life. Just tell God what is in your heart. Tell Him something like this, Dear God, I confess my sin. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. And I believe you sent Jesus to save me. And Jesus died for me, and for my sin, and in my place. And I believe Jesus rose again from the grave, and not because of my good works, but all because of Jesus, what he's done for me. God, please forgive me of my sins. Change me. Help me now to live for you from this day forward. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me your spirit. For the rest of you here today, as you've put your faith in Christ, I want to challenge you. What, What are you believing Stop and ask the the things that I'm believing that are directing the course of my life, are they coming from God or not? If it's from God, it will lead you to life. For those of you that have lost hope, I want to encourage you to get up again. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you that you have a hope and a future for us. That you have victory over sin for us. You've already paid for it. And I pray, Lord, that we would see you in your glory in such a way that then we would see the insanity of our sin, that we would see the lies from hell as what they are, and that we would come out of our darkness and walk in your glorious light. And, Lord, the the icing on the cake is that as we do, people will see you in us, and you'll use us to lead others to you. Well, how great that would be, Lord. So please bless us as we go this week with a greater knowledge of this deep truth we've just barely scratched the surface of today. Lord, these are deep waters, and we need your help to apply that as we move forward from here. God, we love you, and I thank you for your word. I thank you that you, again, Lord Jesus, you're the king of kings, and that's not just something fun to say. That's truth. You're the king of kings. We worship you, and we await the glory that will be revealed at your return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.